October 7, 2012, lecture discussion number 84 on the book of Romans. And before I start, I just, uh, Dave wanted to let me know that, uh, that we got two things. We've got 21,000 uh, downloads uh, on one website from you folks out there, which is extraordinary. I don't even know what to say about that. That is uh, amazing. And that he also wanted me to mention uh, that our website is operating, uh, not quite to the level it's going to be, but it at least is operating. And for us, that's a big deal. And that is cliffside.org. Is that correct? And, of course, we're also on iTunes and Podbean and other places unknown that I don't even know about. So that is for all of you folks. And I did also want to mention that I enjoyed the uh, the two gentlemen who had decided that I was um, I was better than Portuguese reruns. So that's my new uh, T-shirt, Steve Cronister, better than Portuguese reruns. Apparently there's a gentleman in Portugal who is listening, and we're glad to have you. I should also say uh, there's a bunch of folks. Uh, it's astonishing to me. Uh, right now our, our foreign countries, uh, and let me open it here to make sure I get it correct, um, I believe... Um, I believe it is the United Kingdom uh, is um, is very strong. Yes, the United Kingdom and, uh, of course, Canada. It's hard to call the Canadians foreign when you're in Alaska. They're probably closer to us than anybody else. So, just again, thank all you folks for that, and, and uh, now we'll get going. We're finally moving into uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. At least we're going to be reading it today and breaking it down a little bit. Attempting to find as many questions as we can, <coughs> uh, excuse me, and hopefully as we progress into what is an incredible section uh, on the typology of Adam. What that means, of course, is that Adam is portraying, in a, even though he is a literal, a literal existing human being, that it did and said exactly, actually, what he did and said. He also, at the same time, has been used. Uh, by God to be this amazing picture that is filled with all kinds of extraordinary truths. Uh, typology is a picture of Christ or a portrait of Christ. And so we're going to be getting into that again, and I hopefully you can remember all that we have done in the past. I've done that subject many, many times. The trick is to keep doing it different every time I come across it. And now we're in Romans 5, and here it is again. But you have to remember... Any lecture on Adam and Eve is, is a discussion on knowing the difference, the distinction between good and evil, which on itself, as, you, as, you, as you've been around lately, you know, just being able to tell the difference between good and evil is an extraordinary topic. But that is something that is specifically said about Adam, and then these decisions that Adam had to confront. He had a, a bunch of them, and he had to get them all right, and they're very difficult decisions. And he confronted them. He had the two trees decisions, decisions, as you know. He, he made the decision, fully aware what he was doing, to take from one tree, and then he made the opposite decision on the other tree, which is, again, an extraordinary thing. And so you ask yourself, what are the two trees for? What are they proof of? They're a test of some kind. What exactly is that test? And trust me, it's far more complicated than anyone has probably ever led you to believe. And that's where we, um, that's where we have been in the past, those decisions that Adam has made. A case can be made uh, for many more decisions than I will give you, uh, that I'm confident that he had to make, but we'll focus on the ones um, that, uh, that I think are uh, irrefutable. And those decisions, by the way, have to be divided into two groups. 
you have what's called the pre-Eve decisions. So before Eve was built, if you will, before Adam is put into a deep sleep, uh, he has decisions, and then he has uh, he has post-Eve decisions as well. And so looking at all of those decisions that he's making are critical in order to understand this very complex story. As you know, the deep sleep of and the building of Eve, Adam is put into a deep sleep, and out of his side comes blood and flesh and bone, and she is made out of that. Uh, not specifically the rib. The word, as you know, and I have to repeat it because there's so many new people listening now on the Internet, the word is cella, which means side. And uh, you see in that, of course, the piercing of the side of Christ, and you're about to begin to put the two people, if you will, God the Son or God in the flesh, and this uh, person, Adam, the first federal head of humanity, you see this relationship beginning to develop. The key to Adam, as you know, is the deception process what how what is required for you to be deceived? I, I tell this story a lot because, as you know, I tried to be a professional pool player. I didn't get where I wanted to get, but I got a lot better than most people would have thought for somebody that's right or left-eyed and right-handed. And yes, that's my pool table over there. There's a reason I owned it because I practiced on it every single day for 12, 13 hours a day. And I did that for many, many years. You would think I would still be good at it, but I'm not. I'm old now, and I can't see. But I had a friend who, uh, whenever we were together playing in tournaments or any other means, he would always have a method for finding out whether or not he could fool somebody. And it always worked. So here's the deception process to consider when you're out amongst yourselves and wondering whether or not you're in, you're in the uh, arms of a predator, which is what he was. He would give $5 to somebody sitting around watching him play and say, would you go and ask the uh, server up there for my Coke? I get a Coke. The Coke costs $3. Uh, and uh, would you mind doing that? And he'd hand him $5. Now, the server, of course, knew what he was doing because they all know each other in these environments. And the old adage, if you can't spot the sucker in the room, it's you, right? And so uh, uh, the server and the pool player, pool hustler were in on it. What he was doing was trolling for, uh, for uh, people that he could easily deceive. So part of the deception process is that you must be easy to deceive. Part of the deception process is that you must be willing to be deceived. Both of those, the capability to be deceived and the will to be deceived, as you know, enters into our free will discussion that we are having. So uh, the way it worked is the uh, the guy's got $5. Now, sure, I'll go get your, your Coke for $5. By the way, pool players never drink. They don't even drink coffee. Very rarely will they drink anything because they don't want to be affected by it physically. And so uh, they'll ask you for something and then they'll never drink it. That's just how they work because the game requires tremendous amount of hand-eye coordination and you have to be still and you have to be able to produce the same skill over and over again without flaw. So the guy would come back with the Coke, right? But when he when he asked for the Coke, the server would say that the Coke costs a dollar and give him back four dollars. 
So he was told that he was to come back with $2, but in fact, he has $4. Now, the person that is easy to be deceived will do what with the $4? That's right, he'll keep two of it. And that identifies him as a sucker, right off the bat. And now the pool player knows he can destroy a man that will not give back correct change. Because part of the deception process is that you must think more of yourself and less of the pool player. This man that took the money back decided that the pool player was an idiot. He is willing to pay $5 for a $1 Coke and thought it was worth 3 And so he cheats him out of 2 bucks. Because his opinion of the pool player is that the pool player is stupid. And that he is smart. So a delusional understanding of yourself is required to be deceived. That's how it works. Now he knows. What's the, what's the next thing he does? I won't keep going with this. But what's the next thing the pool player does to the man that won't give him correct change that will steal $2 for him, from him? He'll ask him to play a game. How much will he ask him to play for? $2. That's how it starts. And before you know it, somebody has lost four or $500. Because you're playing against an extremely accomplished person and you have no, it's not gambling, it's stealing. He's stealing from you because he's identified you as somebody that, and he justifies it. He identifies you as somebody that is deluding himself. If you'll delude yourself into thinking that you can cheat somebody out of two dollars, then you're such an idiot that you can be taken for a lot more than that. Not only that, you are somebody that deserves to be taken. That's how they, they figure it. If you're so crooked that you'll steal two dollars from me, thinking I'm stupid, then I deserve you deserve for me to take you for everything I got. So they have a moral uh, escape that way. It's not really accurate in the sense that they're wrong, but it's still something that they do. They prey on the weak, right? The weak-minded. Anyway, all of that to say, the deception process shows up right off the bat in Adam and Eve. What's the, it's called the, the why Eve question. What is the difference between Adam and Eve? Adam was not deceived. He made decisions based on not being deceived. Eve made decisions based on being deceived. What is the difference? And that seems like a duh question. I got a man and a woman, but there's more to it than that. Why was it that Eve was able to be deceived? And why was it that Adam was not deceived? The Bible's clear. So you have that coming again. I hope you remember all of that. We have federal headship. Adam is the federal headship, head of all of humanity. Christ being the other federal head. The only two that have ever been held the title of federal headship. Christ, of course, being God himself, continues to hold federal headship. Uh, Adam forfeited his. You have the image of God. What does it mean to be in the image of God? You have the decisions of David. David also has decisions very similar to the decisions of Adam, juxtaposed with the decisions of Adam. So I have the decisions of David, the decisions of Adam, and then I have the decisions of Christ as well. Uh, David's Gethsemane, uh, Christ's Gethsemane, uh, and then, if you will, Adam's Gethsemane, which of course means pressure or olive press. So all of that is coming back again. That's where we are again. And of course, uh, the observer effect and free will, which I pretty much just bored everybody into a stupor last Sunday with. But I knew that would be okay eventually. Um, I, I have to bring the observer effect and free will into this discussion over and over again. So I, I did the best I could to get it in there. 
and get it started last week. But nonetheless, Romans 5.12 is nothing if not a bomb blast with regard to human acts of will and choosing. And as you should know, choosing is eventually a discussion that requires that you um, investigate quantum physics. Specifically, there's a baby escaping. Not for long. He would have gone, he would have made it to Spinard if you hadn't moved that. He was on his way. And he's happy about it, isn't he? <laughs> the baby had crawled under two rows of chairs and was on his way down the hallway, for those of you who are listening and not here. Free will is eventually, or choosing our purpose, is, event, is going to be a discussion that requires quantum physics, specifically Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle or uncertainty principle. Uh, and that becomes a discussion on probabilities. If we're not certain of something, then what care are we left with? We're left with probabilities. And that incorporates the observer effect or observation. And then off we go into whether or not quantum theory accounts for free will. Does quantum theory account for free will? And I'm going to argue for it to the affirmative, that it does indeed. There's no question about it in my mind, and it is one of the great proofs that we have free will. And if we have free will, what does that mean to evolutionary monism? It destroys evolutionary monism. Free will and evolutionary monism are opposed to one another. They're, they're on a collision that cannot be resolved. Evolution says there is only random uh, purposelessness. Quantum theory accounts for free will, which means purpose, decision capability. Anyway, the hope is that you've heard all these terms enough to this date, and again, where are we? We're on lecture number 84 in this series, and I did Genesis. It, it took me, what, about 120 lectures to do that. So there's a lot of background that I want you to try to remember, and you've, you've got enough of it that you can begin to assimilate and, and connect them correctly. And even if you lack comfort with the totality of their meanings, that's okay. Like I said, I spent last Sunday resurrecting the observer effect because I knew Romans 5.12 was on the horizon. And whenever you say horizon, what are you talking about now? Yes, the speed of light, general relativity. So there you are. All of that is, is, is back. And that's why I say welcome to Romans 5.12. And my task, and I knew it when I went into Romans. And this is what you have to do. My task is uh, to try to get this complexity coherent. And that's not easy. Not easy for me at all. So I know what we're up against and I know what this is like to listen to I have had to listen to it. So I've been where you're at. So, eventually my plan is to get you to reason through it all so that you have have it as your own. You own it. And uh, this time, however, it'll be a little easier because we have Edgar Andrews as an able guide, Professor Andrews, and uh, his book is going to be helpful, and back we go. So let's uh, read the text. Let's get started. That was just the introduction most of your neighbors are now fast asleep, which is perfectly fine. It is my job to provide rest. Romans 5:10 through 15. Let's read it. To, yeah, I'll read it, and we'll look at it in pieces instead of in a great big section. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son... 
<coughs> excuse me, which is Jesus Christ, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those who had not sinned, which meant even over those who had not received the law up to that point, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's Offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Okay, there it is. So let's start with. We were enemies. So the first thing you notice is we're enemies. Enemies of who? We're enemies of God. That's what we are. That's how we start. We're all enemies. We're all are enemies of God. What's the obvious question? Why are we enemies? How did we become enemies of God? Are we still enemies? If we're still enemies, how do we get out of enemies? Is it possible to be a non-enemy of God? What is the ex-enemy process? How do we stop being enemies? Number B, we're saved from being an enemy by the life of Christ. Can I reach it? Yes. Saved by his life. Notice, through the death, we're reconciled. But we are saved by his life. Notice, death, life, reconciled, saved. What does that mean? And then this one, which is where we're going to be today. Another one of these therefores. Therefore, through one man. The one that wasn't deceived by Satan, but still nonetheless made the decision to be disobedient. Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world. This is where the heavy lifting begins right now. Through one man, this one man. We have a why Eve question, now we have a why Adam question. Why this one man? What happened here? Why is it that sin and death enters the world through this one man? What other options are there? Obviously, there are no other options. It had to be this way. The omniscience of God requires that it works this way. No other way would have worked properly. All other ways would have been flawed somehow. This is the unflawed way. Uh, But people come all the time and they have the how-abouts. Or the why-nots. And they'll propose things to me all the time. And they'll say, how about God just killing Adam? Just blow him up. Why should God allow sin to enter everybody else because of this one man's decisions that he made? Why not just 
blow up Adam, create a new Adam. We can call him Adam 2. We have A1, and then we can have A2. Let's get rid of A1, because he's obviously made a decision that would cause sin to enter the entire creation, and, in fact, the entire creation would be the universal creation. So let's just get rid of him, but keep in mind, I already have Satan that has sin in him, right? And Satan was not annihilated, so you got to immediately ask, why wasn't Satan annihilated? And now I've got Adam, and he's not annihilated. There has not been an option. God did not choose the option of uh, annihilating Adam, so what's the obvious question? Why not? Why not just start over? I got Eve that has fallen. I have got Adam that choose to join Eve in being fallen. Why not just start over? Simple, right? Is that what you would have done? Yes, sir. Yes, it comes down to free will eventually. God is not attacking free will. Why not? Okay. This is, by the way, brought up again in Exodus 32, what's called a dramatic theodicy, in Numbers 20, which is the resignation attempt by uh, Moses and Aaron. Exodus 32, as you know, is where God, utilizing Moses, he's using Moses to teach a truth or a lesson to both Israel and now to us through Scripture. But he's teaching this lesson that demonstrates Genesis 15. Remember, as you do, I hope you do, we've gone over thousands of times. I have the animals that are cut in half, right, except for the two birds that are not divided. And passing through is the burning lamp and the smoking furnace, right? That's Genesis 15. That is the love of God and the justice of God, the justice that demands a penalty for sin, which is death or destruction, if you will, and the love of God that wills that none should perish. Those two have to be reconciled. They're both omnipotent forces. They're both unimaginably powerful. They're both omnipotent. And so how do I resolve them? And that's what he's doing in Exodus 32. And the same at at Genesis 18, 16 through 32, where uh, uh, Abraham is portraying the omnipotent love of God as Moses is in Exodus 32. What's happening there in Exodus 32 is the golden calf. What's happening at Genesis 18 is Sodom and Gomorrah. In both cases, God is saying, I should destroy these people. And in both cases, Abraham in one, portraying the burning lamp, saying, no, these people should be saved, spared. Moses in Genesis or Exodus 32 says, as a type of Christ there, as a type of the love of God in this dramatic theodicy, in this play, if you will, where God is using Moses as part of himself in the sense that he's representing the love of God and, and God himself representing the justice of God, Moses cries out, blot me out instead. Save Israel, blot me out. That is exactly what Christ does, isn't it? That's, a, that's the heart of Christ. God the Son, the third, or I'm sorry, the uh, second person of the triune Godhead at Gethsemane. That's what he does, willing that none should perish. So that's what's going on again. So it's the same thing as the question of Adam. So again, why doesn't God annihilate Eve, annihilate Adam, and start over? Same thing in Exodus 32, same thing in Genesis 18. They're all the same, if you will, explanation of this. Why doesn't God annihilate Israel and start over with Moses? He actually poses the very question that I'm asking, and he answers it there as well. 
So you see this relationship develop between Eve and Israel and the fruit uh, and the golden calf and Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that stuff fits together and answers your question, why didn't he annihilate? God doesn't annihilate. He doesn't start over. Why not? I know I sound like a 10-year-old, right, or a 4-year-old every time. Every time you, you say something to him, you say, why? Pretty soon you're reduced to because. I'm not. I can keep going. The very asking of the question returns us to what Jerry said. Jerry said it is free will. I will say it as existence. The very, the very question of why not tell, takes us to a discussion again on existence. Okay, the very, and as you know, I said last week, one of the characteristics of existence is free will. I ask this question all the time. Do I really exist if I do not have free will? Can I exist without free will? Is free will necessary or absolutely part of existence? And I think I made the case pretty good last week that it is. I'll continue to make the case. But uh, that returns us to this question of existence. Can existence be anything but existence? Once you exist, can you be anything but existing? Or if you don't like that question, how about this one? Can existence become non-existence? Can I convert existence into something else? And if you're still dissatisfied with that, we could try this tract instead. Can existence be annihilated? Is it possible to destroy existence in the sense of converting existence to non-existence? Is that, pick one of those questions. And as you know, those are what we've been doing the last few weeks. And also, as you also know, that last question begets its own little series of baby questions or little spawn questions. I asked the little girls before I let them go to a Sunday school class where they're goofing off right now as we speak. I asked the the 14-year-olds, I told them, you have to stay during the lecture today, and it's going to be on Swinburne's brain uh, thought experiment, and they they wanted nothing to do with it. And then so I said, okay, uh, what is existence made of? Because existence is not spatially extended, which means existence has no location, just like thoughts and mental properties. There's no location, there's no weight, there's no size, spatially unextended. What, so what's it made of? It's obviously not made of particles or matter. What is existence made of? What material is it? Where do you get the existence material? Because existence is a thing, just like a thought is a thing, just like love or fear or belief is a thing. What's the thing made out of? It's not made out of matter. So what is it made out of? And then once you get that question, that fun question, uh, uh, what is non-existence made of? If I have existence and it's made of something, what is non-existence made of? And that sends us back to Edgar Andrews, as you know, the void zero and void one, knowing the difference between the two nothings, or, or what is nothing made of. And all of that is at Romans 5.12. And I didn't even get very far, I just got to see. Well, we go all the way in those first five or six verses, all the way to, to Z. Through one man, sin, death, entered the world, it's necessary to understand why that happened. 
The secular world doesn't think it's necessary, as you know, by the way. They think this is a fable. They think the passages on Adam and Eve and Satan is silly, simple fantasy, and they insist upon that. And it's immediately obvious that anyone that thinks that, or even considers that to be possible, that in itself is very, very illiterate, childish, elementary, foolish thinking. They've not spent even a second looking at what's in this Bible. The lesson of Adam is the most complex of all human experience. It's extraordinary. It's filled at the brim with wisdom, and I can't do it justice. Every time I think I have found most of what's in there, uh, another huge mountain of more shows up. The story of Adam requires the leader, uh, I'm sorry, the reader to contemplate existence, to contemplate goodness, to contemplate evil, to contemplate sin, will, free will, death, life, creation, justice, sacrifice, deception, belief, rejection, lies. That's just the beginning. Blood. And very, very, very few people. I'm rare to meet one outside of my environment. Very, very few people know the truths of Adam and Eve. There's thousands of truths on Adam and Eve. It's rare I find somebody that knows one. They think they know them, but they don't. They don't know any truths about Adam. They don't know any truths about Eve. They don't know any truths about Satan or the two trees or the, uh, or the slain animals and the blood coverings. They, or the fig- they don't know anything. Very few I, that, that do. Okay, back to item C and all of its easy questions. This is where Seth has to wake up. This is now the fun part. Okay, maybe not so fun. Probably the best way to approach it is by a de- and Seth's my uncle. I'm sorry, Seth's my nephew. I'm his uncle. That's why he has to wake up. I have a. I am going to stand before the throne and God is going to beat me if Seth is an idiot. So I gotta, I gotta fight him the whole way. I'm resolved, I'm relieved of my responsibilities though when he's uh, 16. Okay, I made that up. But I thought it would be fair. Probably the best way to approach through, therefore through one man, death, death and sin came into the existence, it came into the world of man. Probably the best way to approach it is by adapting Bernard Williams' famous uh, mad surgeon thought experiment with a little bit of Richard Swinburne's uh, which brain is me added to the mix. So, admittedly, I've, I've modified both uh, to my own liking, and so if you research either one, uh, Williams or Swinburne, you'll notice that I've adjusted them. I've tweaked them a little bit. And I'm sure Mr. Williams and Mr. Swinburne uh, will be receptive and appreciative and will approve of what I've done. Really, I, I think they will. Uh, no, I don't think they will. That, that's, that's a fake, really. But uh, I did it anyway. I'm undaunted. Okay, here we go. This is the only part of the whole lecture that is you have to kind of try to get through. The rest of it was really for the Internet people, right? 
is they get, they get really whiny if I skip these introductions and assume they know any of this when they don't because they haven't found them on the Internet yet. Swinburne noted that our physical brain has two what? What does it have? What does our brain have? I'm going to try to draw our brain. Not going to do a good job. Okay? Looks like lungs, I know. Okay, but what does our brain have? It has two hemispheres, right? Two very similar hemispheres, a left and a right. Ed did Williams, he also noted that. The left hemisphere, to put it in very simplistic manner, I know there's a lot of medical professionals here, so I'm not trying to uh, do it accurately. I'm just trying to do it for the general audience. To be as simplistic as I can, the left hemisphere, for the sake of our little thought experiment today, controls basically the limbs and the processing sensory uh, information from the right side of the brain. So if I call this right and I call this left, the left hemisphere will control, and i got to do this correctly, the left hemisphere will control the limbs primarily uh, on the right side of the body and the sensory processing system that I have on the right side of the body, which would be the right side of my eyes, for example. Not my right eye, but the right side of my eyes is controlled by the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere controls the limbs and the processing of sensory information uh, from the left side of the body, the left side of the eyes. That's a pretty general way, a simplistic manner, uh, fairly accurate for the sake of our discussion. And generally, the left hemisphere has the most responsibility for speech. But the two hemispheres interact with one another, though they have different roles, okay? So far, so good. Everybody's still on the bus. I'm watching. We will pass out little buckets that you can drool in as the lecture goes along. Most of you now are asking, what does this have to do with God not annihilating Adam and starting over? Or what has this got to do with not starting over with Moses and destroying Israel? Or what does this have to do with saving Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, perhaps this will help. Suppose as Swinburne proposes that eventually medical science progresses to the level where they're able to do something that they're working on. They're able to find an empty skull. There's one. I found one already. But let's say they find an empty skull, say full of mush. And they suck the mush out and they have this empty skull, but the body somehow is they're able to keep it alive through its unconscious system. And they are able now to take the right hemisphere and move it over here. And transplant it. As you know, brain operations that remove significant portions of brain matter are increasingly common, aren't they? They're moving, a tremendous amount of brain matter is being removed because of tumors and the like. And the destruction or the removal of one hemisphere results in the other hemisphere doing what? What does the other hemisphere do? It tries to compensate, doesn't it? It begins to take over the responsibility of the destroyed or the missing parts. So for 
That's, by the way, a phenomenon that's especially the case in children. But for our little thought experiment, what has happened is, is that I had a fully functioning human being, and I had one that was missing most of its brain, and I took out the, the right hemisphere from this brain, and I transplanted it over here. And both patients have survived. So as it is possible today to transplant hearts and lungs and kidneys and skin, one can easily assume that the brain can likewise maybe eventually be transplanted, wouldn't you say? Hmm? Don't you watch TV? But for our experiment, let's assume that I'm able to do this. The technology progresses, it may be a couple of weeks from now. But let's assume the technology progresses and I am able to divide the brain. Can I cut off an arm? Yes, I can. Can I remove a heart? Can I do the same with the kidney? Can I do skins? Can I cut off fingers? Can I? What happens if I lose both of my legs and both of my arms and I get a haircut? Who? Where? What happened to me? Yeah, I can survive. Wouldn't you agree? If I have no no physical arms, no physical legs, all I have is a torso, and in that torso, my heart goes bad. They remove my heart, give me another heart. Can that? Is that possible? Well, I'm proposing. That All of that, my arm is what? It's physical matter, isn't it? I am proposing that I can remove physical matter and put it wherever I want. Can they take off my skin and give it to you? They can. Can they take out my kidney and give it to you? They do. They take my blood, give it to you? How about my eye? They can do it. Physical matter can be moved around, can it not? I'm proposing to you that the brain is physical matter and I'm simply moving physical matter around. Okay? Now, if I do that, if one can assume for the purposes of our... If you can imagine that it can be done, by the way, can it be done? But it raises immediate questions, doesn't it? The obvious question. If one hemisphere is removed and replaced by another from a donor, let's assume that I did this instead of what I showed you. I do with my thing. I have a hemisphere that has failed, most likely from accident or injury. I have a hemisphere that has been destroyed. And so what they do is they find a donor hemisphere and they put it in there. So the donor, the right hemisphere, has come from a donor. What's the new obvious question? Huh? Well, they, they will if I'm, if I'm a very, you know, I, look, this happened on Star Trek all the time. You know that it did. You saw him do it. So, I have now a donor section of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. If one hemisphere is removed and replaced by another from a donor, 
what's, what's, what's my problem now? I want to know, would the self-identity from the transplanted donor uh, remain with the brain? In other words, do you, your self-identity, your self-awareness, uh, your uh, memories, your belief, your character, do you follow your brain? You don't follow your arm. We agree with that. You don't follow your feet or your eyes. Do you follow? Those are physical material. Is this physical material, is that you? That's ultimately question, the question. Would the self-identity of the transplanted brain remain with the organ? In other words, this donor has a self-awareness. He has a self-identity, a personhood. He knows who he is. When I put his right hemisphere into this person's body, this is Swinburne's uh, thought experiment again, does that self now come in here? What's the other option? So, yeah, the hope, the fears, the memories, the belief, the character, do they come intact with the donor hemisphere? In other words, are there now what in this body? I mean, I put the rest of the body here for you. All of this is physical material. You don't need any of it, as we, as we decided. We can replace it, remove it at will, can't we? But I put another person's right hemisphere in there with your, for example, let me internalize it to you or make it specific. Who says I don't do applicational sermons? You are here. That's you. And you need a right hemisphere. All right, you. They bring in a a donor hemisphere from Fred. I want to know, does Fred now sit in the same body as you? Are you together? Have I transferred his personhood? My little thought experiment. In other words, are there now two separate living persons in one body? Hmm? Okay, well, let me help you out. So far, we're doing okay. But now, let's just do... uh, These are very, very famous uh, situations, right? I have two brains on one body, right? Happens all the time, I'm afraid, unfortunately, for those people. Do I have two separate persons in one body? I'm asking this a simple question. Do I have one body uh, or, or one brain and two people in one body? Now, I, I just All I did, right, is, is this. I collapsed the two heads into one head. A Siamese twin scenario, if you will, except at a much more complex level. Two hemispheres side by side. Do I have separate mental lives, two distinct mental lives? Has the transplant, if you will, that I have proposed to you, created or caused two persons in one body? Has that happened? And if you think that that has happened, who is this person? It used to be you. But now I've added Fred. So what do I got? You, Fred? Is that what I got? Fred, you? What do I got? Who is this person? Obviously, what am I doing? I'm raising questions about self-identity, self-awareness, personhood. Where does it reside? What is its origin? What is it made of? Or, if you will, 
existence. Can existence be transferred? I'm just asking you, can I transfer existence by transferring physical material? Can existence be extinguished? Is existence dependent upon physical properties? That's what I'm asking you. We've asked those before, but here we are, Romans 5.12. Let me read it again. Therefore, just as one man... One man's sin entered the world. I'm sorry. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Why didn't God just start over? Now, let's continue with more mind-brain problems. I'm not going to finish them today. I'll get them next week for sure. But your job is to do what? Yes, go tell all your friends and families and co-workers tomorrow so that you lose your job and everybody thinks you're crazy. The first time I did this uh, um, many, many years ago when I first heard of it, I, I would tell you that, uh, that it, was, it was, began to be popular Back in the 80s, maybe even the 70s, I'd have to look it up again to see. But I had a, I did it, um, and none of the students that I did it here are here today. But uh, you should have seen their faces. And, of course, they all ran home and told their parents. Mr. Conister says that you can transplant Betty Lou's brain into Mary Alice, and we'll have Betty Lou Mary Alice. And that, and so all these parents called me, and I said, well, come to the class. You can sit in the back. Pretty soon I had 25 parents and 10 kids, because the kids wanted nothing to do with the parents. <laughs> so try it on your friends and neighborhood and see how fast they ask you to move out. But let's go with a little bit more. Let's make it more complicated. Suppose, as Bernard Williams has, that it is soon possible, and Bernard Williams thought, thought this through, that he assumed that it would be possible to separate a brain and transplant each half. So he went further than Swinburne, or Swinburne consolidated him, I think is more correct. This is called the mad surgeon scenario. Now you show up, and you have the right and the left hemispheres. And that he has two empty skulls over here and over here. And he says, I'm going to take this hemisphere, your left hemisphere from my perspective. I'm going to put it over here. And I'm going to take the right hemisphere and put it over here. And I'm going to get rid of that body. The Bernard Williams mad surgeon scenario. What's the obvious question now? What's that? Well, here's the, here's the, that, he, Jerry asked, do they think the same things, right? Okay, here's a better question. That's a great question. But which one is you? Are you this one? Or are you this one? Again, what am I asking you? Can existence be transferred? Can it be can it be, is existence divisible? Okay. Is existence dependent upon physical matter? 
It's not physical matter. Is it dependent upon it? The left hemisphere in the mad surgeon scenario of your brain is into body A, and the right hemisphere is in body B. And your body that you came with is gone. Now, I'm going to make it more interesting, I hope, for you. Let's assume that body A, for the sakes of our discussion, is paralyzed, non-functional, and a severed spinal column, if you will, paraplegic, withered. Body B, however, is intact. Fully functional. And the mad surgeon scenario guy says, you can choose which hemisphere would be placed in which body. Okay? Instantly, you would become a student of neurophysiology, wouldn't you? Because what would you hope to do? What would you hope to figure out? What's your plan? You're going to put one hemisphere in one body and the other hemisphere in the other body, and this hemisphere, this body isn't any good, if you will. Defective. What's your plan? I want to make sure I put myself where? Over here. Well, what's the obvious question? What's over here? Now, here's the better question. Which hemisphere contains you? That was Bernard Williams' great question. He said, there's a risk, isn't there? You could go do something what? Okay, I'm going to help you out. Seth is going to make the decision for you. He's going to decide which hemisphere goes in body A and which hemispheres of your brain goes in body B. Are you happy about it? Uh, it doesn't matter. I could pick anybody for you. He just happens to be convenient, and I'm trying to keep him awake. But your boss, okay, or, you know, your, the neighbor you fight with every day, or whatever. It's somebody, here's the better one. The Department of Motor Vehicles is going to make this decision for you, okay, or say government health care. Won't that be great? But see, the question, that's why I said you'd become a student of uh, neurophysics in a hurry, because you're going to hope to figure out which one of the hemispheres you are in, right? Is that what you're going to do? And there's a risk. Williams calls this risk, but you could easily be long. You want to know which, is. you're going to make an attempt if you're normal, and we're all the same. All important difference we're going to try to find, we're trying to detect it, and we're going between the two hemispheres, we're going, which are, they look identical, and they have similar functions, and they interact, and they seem exactly the same, but we're going to hope we can detect a difference, aren't we? So that we could, something that would indicate which one of the hemispheres contains our personal identity. We want to make sure, I oh, this one, if you pick this one, you're paralyzed. But over here, you get a briefcase full of money. You're doing everything. Is there a difference between the hemispheres with regard to personal identity? And you could easily be wrong. Williams calls this the risk. 
And he says this risk or this ability to be wrong demonstrates that there is something else involved in the continuity of the mind or the continuity of the soul or the continuity of the self or the continuity of the self-identity or the self-awareness. There's something else involved. The risk demonstrates that something else is here than merely the continuity of the parts of the body or the parts of the brain. Because so far, these things, the hemisphere and the body, are all what? Physical. The mind is not physical. And the fact that you can't be sure which hemisphere, which physical place your mind is in, William says, that is evidence that something else is involved in the continuity of the mind. And again, obviously, if I have an arm or leg amputated, I remain me. But if my brain is amputated, do I remain me? What has happened? Again, is personal identity divisible? Okay, so far, I hope I've begun to demonstrate that brain continuity, physical brain matter continuity, or if, as an example, transplantation, I hope I'm demonstrating to you that in itself is not sufficient for self-identity. Moving half of the brain around does not transfer me. No more than, as I said, cutting my hair or replacing my heart. So let's leap ahead now to annihilation uh, or annihilationism, which is how we get, that's how these tie together. If my mental properties contain my self-awareness, then what occurs if my body is destroyed? What occurs, let me do it this way, what occurs if the body is gradually replaced by new parts? Let's put gradualism in. You have two hemispheres. There they are for you. We'll all learn to draw better brains later. And we find out that this part of your brain isn't doing so good. And so I cut it out and I replace it. I take one-fifty of of it. What, What occurs if the body is gradually replaced by new parts grown in the new part laboratory? Steve's a Napa for human beings, if you will. Steve's Shucks Auto Parts. Okay, are they doing it? They're they're growing ears on mice, right? What if they begin to grow brain matter in a laboratory? And and they decide, I'm going to replace that part of your brain on your right hemisphere. Let me put it this way. If you analyze the gradual aspects of this, it becomes clear that mental properties are distinct from physical matter. Every year, one-fiftieth of your brain is replaced with new brain matter. Let's just say that's what I'm doing. After 50 years, your entire brain has been replaced, and they start the process again. Kind of like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Because they do it. They paint the Golden Gate Bridge, and when they're done, they come back and they paint it again, right? It's time to repaint. Same thing. I replace your brain matter, and by the time I've replaced all your brain matter, it's time to replace it again. But I'm only, hey, wait a minute, I'm only replacing the size of a quarter. That's all. 
Can I cut out a size of a quarter and put in some new brain matter that I grew on the back of a white rat? Can I do that? Will that work? What happened to you if I do it? I only replace size of a quarter. What happened to you? I do that every year. What happened to you? After 50 years, your entire brain has been replaced. That, by the way, is exactly what happens. In 50 years, Seth's entire brain will have been replaced. It's what happened to me. <laughs> I'm trying to be a little funny. Same time, I'm a little is I'm, I'm succeeding at that. I know. In other words, where are you? What happened to you? And again, what have I done? I've rephrased the question, didn't I? Why didn't God tear out the brain of Adam and put in a new brain? Why didn't He do that? Why didn't God reach in? And grab the existence or the mental properties or the soul spirit, the memories, the beliefs, the character, the personhood of Adam and annihilate it. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he start over? Back to my question. What is existence made of? Can I destroy existence? What is the difference between existence and non-existence? Why through one man did death enter the world? That's what Romans 12, 5.12 is asking you. And in order to answer that question, you're going to have to solve Swinburne and Williams' brain experiment or thought experiment. You have to figure out where you are. Who you are. Are you, you, yourself, are you spatially extended or spatially unextended? What is going on? Why is, where does sin start, by the way? Does sin start in the physical body? Or does sin start in the mind? If it starts in the mind, how is it transferred from one man's mind to every man's mind? And why didn't God change the process and stop it? Next week, more Romans 5.12. This is the place where the musicians come forward and we are rising to be dismissed.